Last Tuesday, the federal government and French naval contractor Naval Group announced they had reached a formal agreement to spend at least 60% of the future submarine program, first signed by the Abbott government in 2016, in Australia. It's been a long time in the pipeline, but this tentative agreement would see some of the employment opportunities in manufacturing, as well as a promise to go to the domestic market first for any equipment needed that was initially promised five years ago. However, it hasn't been smooth sailing by any means. The cost in the initial agreement signed in late 2016 was $50 billion. However, a parliamentary library research report in February of 2020 found that that cost would be realistically anywhere between 80 to $145 billion. Since then, the gap between what was promised and what is now expected has only grown. Our current fleet of Collins-class submarines are quickly starting to look like donkeys in a field of thoroughbreds. And with the timeline of construction still a lingering question, our future subs could be obsolete before they even touch the water. Welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. This week, we're joined by one of the only parliamentarians to have actually sailed on a Collins-class submarine, former submariner and now independent senator for South Australia, Rex Patrick. And joining the senator is Dr Nicole Sutton, lecturer in the accounting discipline group at the UTS Business School. Thank you both for joining us. Now, Senator, since negotiations with France or with Naval Group began in 2016, uh, Australia's had three Prime Ministers, three Deputy PMs, three Treasurers, five Defence Ministers and four Ministers for Defence Industry. Of those 15 individuals who have held these relevant portfolios, seven have now left Parliament. However many more will leave over the next two weeks is up to fate. Do you think, just to start off, is there a failure to accept responsibility for the deal in 2016 or at least to make a difficult decision on its future? Well, politicians are masters at uh, uh, removing any responsibility from themselves and uh, it's always difficult when uh, ministers move or change uh, portfolios or indeed leave the parliament uh, as has been the case. We do need to hold government to account in in relation to any of these decisions and uh, moving forward uh, I think we do have some tough decisions to be made and one of the problems we've got is that the problems with the future submarine may not manifest themselves until uh, 10 years' time from now, and so it's very difficult for politicians to make really big calls on problems that are likely to be a decade away. And uh, last Tuesday, the government and the naval group contractors announced they'd reached a formal agreement to spend at least 60% of the submarine program in Australia. So this includes procurement requirements as well as, I believe, a promise to go to domestic markets first for a lot of additional equipment needed for the program. Do you think that 60% of the program is a fair amount for what was promised in 2016, particularly by Christopher Pine, as being a big boost for future jobs in South Australia? Do you think that 60% is technically honouring that deal that was promised in 2016? Well, as a politician, 
question I'd always like to see more. Uh, however, you do have to get the balance right between the cost of including everything from Australia. So that would include you know, the making of torpedoes, uh, the making of uh, permanent magnet motors, uh, whether it's diesels or any of the components on the, on the submarine. So you have to find the right balance. The problem has been to date that promises have been made, but nothing contractual was set, which just meant uh, it was really at the whim of uh, the, the people in charge without any legal obligation. Before the contract was signed, a number should have been negotiated and put into writing. I understand that's happened now, but uh, we haven't seen the details of the amendments the Senate has asked for them. We'll have to just wait and see what plays out, because sometimes it comes down to the wording as well. And uh, obviously, Defence Minister Linda Reynolds uh, was expected to front Senate estimates regarding the submarine deal. That is, uh, once again, in the hands of the gods as to whether she uh, will front Senate estimates or indeed whether the future Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, will have to front the Senate. Do you think that there's an issue here where when this deal was signed, obviously from the French perspective, it was a very different political climate in France, Francois Hollande and, and quite a socialist government at the time. It was lauded in France as the contract of the century. Uh, do you think that this deal was and always has been a little bit too positively skewed towards the French contractors as opposed to ultimately what was supposed to be a big boost for manufacturing in Australia, or at least defence manufacturing? Well, ultimately... Naval Group is a state-owned company and one would expect that uh, one of their objectives would be to maximise French industry uh, content in the, in the submarines. That's why it was so important to have the numbers in, in a contract. Uh, as you've um, mentioned, we've seen Australian politicians and officials move on. We've seen French politicians and officials move on. That's why it's so important in these sorts of long-term uh, arrangements uh, to get the contractual terms right. So it's very clear, you know, what you want to do is work and cooperate closely with a, a partner such as Naval Group uh, and only bring the contract out when there are problems. But in the event that there is a problem, there is a dispute, what's in the contract is ultimately what counts. Now, Nicole, it's an interesting time to be discussing this deal, particularly with the Cabinet reshuffle happening at the moment. Uh, how common is it for governments to essentially hide funding throughout their budgets and particularly over forward estimates? Yeah, well, I can't say as an accountant, but I can definitely give you a perspective in terms of when we have to think about when the federal government puts out the budget each year, it really is a pitch and a pitch to the Australian people and it's a pitch to try and... Uh, kind of persuade the Australian people that what they're doing with taxpayer funds um, is kind of worthy and so on. And so in that, there are kind of tips and tricks in terms of how to best present that information so that it supports the sort of message that they want to portray on budget night. And depending on where we are in the, in the kind of political cycle, sometimes it's about spending and they want to show all the money that they're spending and sometimes it's about kind of fiscal restraint and they want to show... Um, that they're actually managing kind of the keep, keeping spending under control. And then so there's the kind of what they say in terms of 
what their kind of headline figures are when the Treasury gets up to do the speech in Parliament. But then there's also figures that have to go into the the actual budget itself, uh, which kind of comes in that big kind of stack of budget books that all the journalists kind of pour over in the lockup. And there are some requirements that force the government to disclose what's actually in those numbers. Um, but then there are some kind of I guess, ways by which they can get around showing the things that don't fit with their message. So, for example, um, now I can't talk exactly about um, a particular deal, but more broadly, when we look in the, at those budget papers, one of the things that's really kind of clear is that you can show your hand or you can hide your hand depending on when you've timed your announcement. So, your, the budget papers, particularly budget paper number two, which is the one that shows, you know, the additional spending that they've announced, this will only include figures of initiatives that are new since the last update. And that update might be the last, the previous year's budget, or it could be the mid-year economic fiscal outlook. So if, um, if a government's actually already announced um, a particular initiative or funding in that mid-year economic fiscal outlook, they don't actually have to show any impact on the budget on budget night. So, and this is where you get that variation. Now, sometimes they want to say they're spending all this money and they'll get up and say, oh, we're going to invest in this. And then you look at the numbers and you go, oh, actually, they've already committed to spending that. And so you can't actually see any more additional spend. Um, alternatively, uh, and so that's, and that's one reason why you might not kind of see it appear on budget night. Um, another reason you might not see something appear in the budgets on budget night, it could be that they actually committed to that funding a long time ago. So, for example, um, it gets much harder to track changes in kind of spending on programs that the government's kind of committed to for the long term. The things that appear on budget night, the things that kind of uh, attract our attention, again, are the new initiatives or the new projects. Um, and so what's kind of a really kind of odd situation is we very rarely go back and actually see, well, what did they actually spend? So there's a kind of big hoo-ha about, you know, what they plan to spend and these new announcements and so on that happens every year on budget night. But then there's not really that follow-up, you know, the, the thing where you come, come in after the fact and go, okay, so how much money do we actually spend? Now, the government actually releases that information every year but it tends to not attract the same kind of attention that, um, that the kind of the big budget night on that tends to do each year. And do you think that that's a very important tactic to utilise as a government, particularly when these long-term contracts and these long-term strategies have such eye-wateringly large figures involved? Yeah, so, I mean, it's always my constant frustration, right? Because it's all, it's all well and good to get up and say how much you plan to spend or how much you plan to save... But, I mean, as everyone knows, even with their own household budgets, it's one, it's one thing to kind of have that aspiration. It's much more important to see, well, what did you actually do? Um, and so I think uh, it definitely, um, it potentially can serve a government's interest to have the focus on the aspirations, uh, the big song and dance, this is what we're going to do, and to downplay the actual results, which, you know, could be years down the track, but, I mean, in this current climate, we're, we're looking, like you say, we are looking at really eye-watering levels of government expenditure. And I think 
the, the thing that we need with that expenditure is accountability. And if you don't actually turn around and focus on the amount of money that actually was spent and how much that varied from what was said on budget night, then you don't get that, um, that level of accountability that perhaps we'd, we'd expect. And is it easier with some portfolios, from your experience obviously covering budgets in the past and being in the lockup, um, is it easier with certain portfolios to excuse uh, a blowout in costing? Yeah, well, I mean, there's certain, you do see some differences across different portfolios in there. Um, I mean, there's a few other kind of bits and pieces which makes it kind of harder to disentangle what's going on. Um, so, for example... One of the other reasons you might not see the figures on budget night, you might not be able to get that level of account like scrutiny, is you'll see frustratingly in amongst all the numbers, you'll see NFP. And you're like, what is this? NFP, NFP. Um, and it's not for publication. And it's basically when the, gov- the government doesn't have to disclose what the figures are. And that might be because, say, it's commercial and confidence. So uh, the expenditure that comes when the Commonwealth sells you know, land and property and so on, that's commercial incompetence, so we don't get to see those figures. Um, or, for example, you might have NFP appear with things with kind of national security. So there's some portfolios that have other reasons why it's harder to kind of interrogate what those figures actually are. And then in some other portfolios, we also have the issue that it's hard to get into the numbers because you can off- if you can offset a cost with a saving somewhere else within a particular department, sometimes... You, uh, we can only see the net effect. Um, and so that can be a little bit frustrating when you're trying to get in there and you're trying to figure out, well, what was that, the cost of that initiative? And if it's been offset, off, if, if it's been offset by some kind of relevant saving, it's sometimes actually hard to see uh, what it is because all you can see is the net effect. With the current economic climate, no one is really expecting any economy around the world to be able to balance their budget. Does that make it easier with the current economic climate for governments to uh, to essentially get away with some some bad financial choices? Mm, well, I mean, absolutely. Like in the sense that um, uh, humans tend to make decisions, kind of, and judgment, kind of, in a relative sense. You know, we, we, it's a kind of an inherent bias in the way in which we think about whether or not things are expensive or not. It really just depends in terms of, well, what was the kind of baseline? Um, so, for like, so if they've shifted the baseline from, you know, it was only a few years ago that we were looking at, you know, a potential deficit um, or a surplus, you know, that was kind of relatively small, like it was kind of a, a few billion dollars. And now we're looking um, at a de- we're looking at deficits that are just kind of such a quantum leap from that that you you start to think well if that's our deficit you know well like who really cares about these small, this, these these figures that we probably would have poured over and paid a lot more attention to so I mean you're right in the sense that once we kind of get with these when you start seeing these figures that just have all these zeros after them you probably are less concerned about ones that seem relatively smaller, even if it is actually a quite substantial amount of money. Um, so, again, this again goes back to the importance of kind of scrutiny when the budget comes out, um, but also then the follow-up where we actually have accountability for the actual amounts that get spent by our government in comparison to what they said they were going to do. Now, Senator, we'll return to you. You've previously said before that what the government should have considered... Uh, was following the likes of South Korea and Greece 
by buying upwards of 20 submarines off the shelf. Now, to most people, off the shelf sounds like going for almost a home brand alternative of submarine. What exactly do you mean by that? Are we able to buy defence equipment simply off the shelf? Look, I think you always have to go through a specialist submarine contractor, someone like Naval Group, uh, TKMS of Germany or or, uh, Navantia of Spain. There's no reason why we couldn't have taken a lower risk option, which was to buy something that was off the shelf. I've uh, been to sea on some of these submarines. I'm one of the few parliamentarians that has actually uh, gone out on nuclear-powered submarines, air-independent propulsion submarines, small submarines, large submarines. There are some superb options available in overseas jurisdictions. And you mentioned South Korea, you mentioned Greece. Both of those countries bought German-designed submarines and they built them in Greece and in South Korea, and we we could have done that. And the money we would have saved could have been directed at Australian industry to then do special updates, to to kind of do what we might call a HSV in in the car world, where where you have a normal uh, Commodore, but you could always have it upgraded by Australian industry. That's the approach I think we should have taken. That would have reduced the risks, reduced the cost, and would have Uh, left us with a superb capability. And do you find the argument by the government that the options presented from Japan really weren't necessarily that viable given that it would allow another sovereign nation to have access to our sensitive defence information? As you've already mentioned, Naval Group is part owned by the French state. So is that argument sort of fundamentally hypocritical to argue that the other options that were tendered, uh, I believe there was uh, options from a a German provider, TG, and then I think Kawasaki and Mitsubishi were the two uh, Japanese alternatives. Do you think that that argument just simply, and I have to excuse the pun, this wasn't on purpose, but do you think it just doesn't hold water to say that the options we were presented from Japan are not viable because it would give a sovereign nation access to our defence information? Look, I don't think that is the case. Whichever solution uh, is picked, it will involve uh, a foreign uh, country. And what has to happen is defence security has to make sure the right processes are in place, the right obligations are in place. Uh, Clearly, you know, we are allied or at least uh, closely aligned with Japan. uh, And we've also got connections into NATO where we find both the French and the Germans. So I don't think that is uh, a big issue. But that goes to my point previously. If you buy a submarine that's close to off the shelf, build it here in Australia, all of the special things that you want to do to that submarine, noting you have the money to do that, could be done here in Australia under what are called osteo conditions, Australian eyes only, and that would be an optimum solution, picking the best from uh, a foreign jurisdiction with appropriate security protections and then conducting out the very special capable, building the very special capabilities here in Australia with Australian citizens only involved. And by the time these submarines are finally completed, um, will they be rendered almost obsolete in the time since? It's going to be quite a while until these submarines are ready. I think most people are suspecting the mid-2030s before we see any of them actually in the water. So do you think it's it's really, if, if we're talking from a position of defence, is it more viable to scuttle this deal and arrange a deal that will allow us to have a more 
cutting-edge submarine by the time that they actually reach the water. Well, if I look at Singapore, they entered their submarine program about the same time as we got the Collins-class submarines. They're on their third variant of submarines, highly capable. One would argue their latest uh, variant is much more capable than Collins. And because of the relatively low price and low risk uh, they can be quite nimble uh, in in uh, adopting new capabilities. If I look at the future submarine, we know uh, that that submarine, which will be delivered, as you said, in 2035, if, if it is on time, will in fact have lead-acid battery cells. Now, anyone who's got a mobile phone or an iPad or a Samsung or any uh, device, uh, a wall bank in their home, an electric car will know that lithium-ion is the, is the latest technology. Lithium-ion is being used on Japanese submarines. We won't have them on our future submarines. In 2035, there will be two places you can find lead-acid cells. One of them will be on uh, our future submarine and the other will be a museum. And that is deeply worrying. The other problem with the schedule is that because we will get these submarines delivered in 2035, we are strategically vulnerable. Uh, in Senate estimates last week, the Secretary of the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs reiterated her concerns about the current situation with Taiwan, uh, with the Chinese um, conducting some fairly aggressive military action in and around the island. Uh, these submarines may well come well after any any particular fight. Not that our we, we ever want to get involved in a fight, one of the points of having a strong, relevant capability is to make sure that uh, you know, China would look to a, a US, J Japanese, Australian, uh, Singaporean uh, alliance, look at the capabilities that we have and simply not embark on anything uh, against Taiwan knowing the cost is too high. These submarines are, you know, are, are 2035 submarines and that's too late. Is there an arms race underway, in a sense, in in the sort of Asia-Pacific region? Obviously, we have a very big role um, in sort of global defence as a, uh, a friend of the United States, and we have a very big responsibility for our region of the world. But who necessarily are we competing with navally? I can't imagine we're competing with China. Is it more Indonesia and our more regional neighbours that we have to have some level of, uh, of superiority over? Oh, look, I think the idea is that we, we have a layered defence arrangement. Uh, first and foremost, we must focus on the defence of Australia, and uh, that means we make an assessment about who might have the capability to either lodge forces on Australian soil or alternatively uh, invade, and then uh, develop a defence force that that focuses on uh, on that defence. Then we move out to, to assisting uh, our uh, friends in New Zealand and the, and the, uh, uh, the South Pacific through to uh, the region and then through to perhaps global uh, contributions from time to time. That's generally the way in which we approach defence procurement. Uh, the Department of Defence is responsible for conducting uh, hypothesis on, on, on uh, potential threats. Uh, they could come from China. I think uh, most people would realise that's, uh, that's a potential. I, th I think less so from Indonesia. Indonesia has moved more towards a de democratic posture. Uh, uh, they're interested in uplifting the 
um, uh, the, you know, the standards of living in their own country. And in some sense, their uh, defence problems relate to internal uh, differences. What we have to do is make sure we have a highly capable defence force that acts as a deterrent and can be used by governments uh, in, in the event that there are uh, disputes or conflicts in a region uh, such that we can contribute to, uh, to those conflicts, hopefully with the view of de-escalating things. Well, does it all hold water? As the Senate has explained, the new designs are far from cutting edge, with the cost blowout further deepening a crisis of identity for Australia as a regional power. By the time our future sub-fleet is operational by the mid-2030s, Senator Patrick simply believes the world will have moved on. But should we scrap the future subs and go for an off-the-shelf alternative? To those without their sea legs, it sounds like the home brand alternative to defence contracting. But is that fair to say? As Dr Sutton made clear with the state of the world's economies, it isn't hard to hide a loss in the budget figures. And the -the off-the-shelf alternative would, as the Senator makes very clear, still provide jobs in Australia during the construction phase, as well as longer-term employment opportunities for maintenance and upkeep. Whatever the arguments may be for either scuttling the deal or ploughing ahead full steam, newly minted Defence Minister Peter Dutton will be forced to play his hand sooner rather than later, with Senate estimates already breathing down the neck of the ministry. That concludes this week's episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and supported by the UTS Business School. We'd also like to thank our national broadcast partner, the Community Radio Network, and today's guests, Senator Rex Patrick and Dr Nicole Sutton. Make sure to check out our old episodes wherever you source your podcasts. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next time.